Good morning, all. So good to, to be here with you. Thank you all for coming. This morning, I am excited about um, continuing the series that we've been doing on our statement of faith. I've titled the message, Jesus, God Incarnate. If you recall, last, time, last message, um, we talked about God the Father. Today, our topic is Jesus. And maybe there's a few of you sitting here wondering, well, what do they talk about normally if they don't talk about Jesus? Um, I believe, I trust most times our messages are pointed, direct, directed, point us towards Jesus. However, we do want to take a, a closer look at that specifically um, this morning. James, just a thought I had in regards to the message and how this relates to your, your uh, uh, comment about releasing Fidel. There's been another father who has released and sent his son. God the Father sent Jesus. And we can know that since we are created in his image, we don't know what that was like, but there had to have been some emotions because God is a God of love. So if you recall, in the last message, I opened with a question. <clears throat> what comes to your mind when we think about God? What, 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 what do you think about when, when you think about God? And I'm not going to take the time to, to let you answer that question, but we, here's the answer. A.W. Tozer says that what comes to our minds when we think about God that's the most important thing about us. And, and again, this morning as we talk about Jesus, I'd, I'd like for us to begin to think that way. What, what is our reaction or what is our um, initial response when we think about God and we think about Jesus and who they are? And sometimes for some of us, it's not necessarily good. But Jesus says in, in the Gospel of John, and by the way, we're going to be looking at, at the first chapter of John. We're also going to be looking at some other passages in John. But the entire Gospel of John is a fascinating book. John says in chapter 15, verse 15, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. And so this morning, a, a, part of, a, a part of my desire for you is that you could know Jesus and be known by Jesus as a friend. That there is, when you think about God, that there is a warmth and a tenderness that comes to your mind. <clears throat> I 
like to review briefly a little bit about what we talked about last time. We had looked at Isaiah chapter 40. Um, to whom then will you compare me? And so we had been talking about God the Father. God says in, he's speaking here through Isaiah, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their hosts by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, no one is missing. And so if you recall, we had looked at um, the universe and, and how big, how vast, how immense, how amazing that the universe is. And three things that we learned from that, one is that the universe is very precisely tuned. In fact, something I thought about since then is that the universe is so precisely tuned that we can't even really make clocks accurate enough to keep time. Have you ever thought about that? Most of the clocks that we have are not accurate enough to keep time as precisely as the universe does. The other thing that we looked at at that time is that the gravitational force of the universe, if it was different by, who remembers the number? 1 to the 40th power. And... That would be like a tape measure stretched across the entire known universe and then moving the mark one inch. So the universe is extremely fine-tuned. The other thing is the universe is unimaginably vast. Remember, from our solar system... It's about 30 trillion miles to the next closest star in our galaxy. And who remembers how long it takes to get there in the space shuttle? In the space shuttle, it would take 20,000 years. It's about four or five light years. If we could travel at the speed of light to the next closest star in our solar system, it would take four to five years to get there. We don't really know how big the solar system is. There's numbers into the billions of light years. Uh, how big, sorry, our universe. We know how big our solar system and our Milky Way galaxy is. But outside of that, the third thing is that the universe is amazingly, dazzlingly beautiful. The, j just go outside sometime. If you're, if you're ever feeling down, go outside and look at the heavens. Just look at the heavens. And know that God has created this. We also then looked at the um, Hubble Ultra Deep Field. And I, I wish that we had... Um, I wish we had equipment that would do this justice. Uh, do yourself a favor, look this up this afternoon. Um, what we're looking at is a photo that was taken from the Hubble Space Telescope. And who remembers how big this photo is? This photo is trained on one twenty-four millionths 
of the sky in our southern hemisphere. And over a period of about 11 days, they took this photo, and this photo really is, they call it the ultra-deep field because if you could make it three-dimensional, it would be very deep. In other words, some of what you're seeing there is millions of light years in the distance. And by the way, these aren't stars. These are galaxies. And who remembers how many galaxies? In this photo, it's estimated there's about 10,000 galaxies in one twenty-four millionth of the sky. And that's about, if you would take a, a grain of rice on the tip of your finger and train it at the sky. That's what you're looking at. How many stars are there in the universe? How many stars? Here, in one twenty-four millionth of the sky, we have 10,000 galaxies. Scientists estimate that there are as many stars in the sky, in the universe, as there are grains of sand on the Earth's beaches times 100,000. We don't really know how big the universe is. And God says to Isaiah, if you want to know what I'm like, if you want to compare me to something, go out and look at the sky. The psalmist says, he counts the number and he calls them by name. This is God the Father who has created you. The psalmist also says in Psalms 103, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, how high is the heaven above the earth? We really don't know. We cannot comprehend it. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that high, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. So the psalmist makes a comparison. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how great God's love is for you. As far as the east is from the west, across how far is that? So far does He remove our transgressions from us. And so, I, I, I want, want us to think about this as we begin to talk about Jesus. Here's the question. Does what you know about God cause you to worship? So keep, keep the universe, keep this little science lesson from a pastor, not a, not a scientist. <laughs> keep this in your mind. 
as we talk about Jesus. And we, we also, in the last message, we talked a little bit about the Trinity. I just want to put this in front of you again because we are talking, I'm not going to expound on it much, but remember we have um, three persons that have one nature. And for some of us, that's, well, I think for all of us, that's really kind of hard to, to, to comprehend. But can you comprehend how big the universe is? The sun then has two natures. The divine nature and a human nature. And so for a little bit of, of tongue twisting here, um, there are three who's that have one what and who too has two watts. And no, I didn't read that in the cat in the hat either. <laughs> Paul writes to... Here, here's all I want us to see in, in this is that Jesus, the Son of God, has two natures. And we're simply going to read the scriptures and we're going, to, we're going to believe that. I'm not going to explain that to you in a way that you say, oh, I understand exactly how that works because I don't understand it either. However, that doesn't mean that I don't believe it. Paul writes to the Colossians, that, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together." And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This is, I believe, one of the most, most concise, one of the most... Um, comprehensive statements of who Jesus is in the entire scriptures. Notice that he's the image of the invisible God and in him, in this man Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Or as the King James would say, the in him dwells okay, now I can't recite it. Um dwells the fullness of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And so in Jesus is the expressed image as Hebrews would say, or the ESV says that he is the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so all I want us to see here is that Jesus 
and the Father are one. They have one nature with and then Jesus has a human nature as well. And so with that in mind, I'm going to, this, is, this is an interactive part of, of the lesson here. I'm going to ask you a question. What's the most amazing thing about Jesus that you know of? Good answer. By the way, there's probably not going to be any wrong answers, really. I'm not going to grade you on this. Anyone else? Most amazing thing about Jesus. What, what, what would come to your mind? That's the exact answer I'm looking for. That's, that's it, right there. Because if, if we don't believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man, we don't have a gospel. I'd like to read the article. This is, our, this is the portion of the Son in our statement of faith. We believe in Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, who was with the Father from all eternity who for our salvation took upon himself human nature, and who by his redemptive death and resurrection conquered the forces of sin and Satan and atoned for the sins of mankind. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, and in God's redemptive purpose was crucified. He rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and now as Lord and Christ at the right hand of the Father, interceding for the saints. He is the Lord and Savior of all Christian believers and the coming judge of the living and the dead. We believe in his full deity and full humanity according to the scriptures. This, this statement, I, I think this is just a, a great statement. It, it covers Jesus, who Jesus was, very well. Speaks of his being with the Father in all eternity his redemptive death, having conquered the forces, being born of a virgin, lived a sinless life. He was crucified, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, intercedes for the saints at the right hand of the Father. He's Lord and Savior of the Christian believers. And the coming judge, speaking of future tense, coming judge of the living and the dead. However, what makes this so good is the last line. The first statement and the last line. We believe in Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, who took upon himself human nature. And the last line, we believe in his full deity and full humanity according to the Scriptures. And so, Jesus is fully human and Fully God. The reason I believe this is so good is because the, that this, these last, the first and the last line there are so important is because without that, 
There is no gospel. And so one of the things that I have learned, my, my, my intention this morning is to highlight and emphasize that truth about who Jesus is. See, if Jesus is not fully God and also simultaneously fully man, then his death on the cross was simply one more of untold countless Roman crucifixions, and it means nothing for us. However, since he was fully God, and since he was fully man, it does mean something for us. So everything in this statement hinges on that. I'd like to look at John, the first chapter of John, the Gospel of John, verse 14. And for, for this study, I would say this is, this is the key passage of Scripture. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we're only really going to look this morning at the first phrase, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I, I actually intend, I believe, to do another message where I want to deal more fully with the last portion, specifically the section of grace and truth. However, for this morning, one of the things that I have I discovered in this study is that many of the heresies throughout Christianity actually had roots back here. We struggle as human beings with this concept that Jesus was fully man and fully God. In fact, this is really why the Apostle John wrote the epistles of John, because in that time already, as early as the end of the first century, from 90 AD onward, one of the first heresies of the Christian church was Gnosticism, and there were several strains of that. And in essence, what they, they, they denied the deity of Christ. And it varied from group to group, or maybe from time to time a little bit, but somewhat their, their theology, I guess you would say, was that since all matter is evil, the flesh is evil, and the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, was a lesser God, and there actually was a higher power that was in control of it all. And Jesus, God Jesus, was a son of this higher power. And he did live inside a man, Jesus, but then before the crucifixion, he left. It it's really sounds kind of absurd to us, but they denied the deity of Jesus Christ. Hence, John writes the epistles in, in refuting that, that heresy. 
I also wonder this morning, one of the reasons why I think this is important for us to look at is because I wonder if in our culture we haven't dumbed this down a little bit. I'm going to tell you a story about John, the Apostle John. This is a story of Serinthus, and it's told to us by Irenaeus around the year 200, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who, and Polycarp spent some time with John, was a student of John. And so Polycarp was with John, the Apostle John, at Ephesus, and at that time, you know, they had bathhouses, and they would, you know, the public bathhouses, and they would go there to refresh, and, and so John and Polycarp go to the bathhouse, or one of them, in the city of Ephesus. And as they enter, John sees that Serenthus, who was a leader in the Gnostic movement, was inside the building. And he immediately runs outside shouting for all to hear, let us run, lest even the bathhouses fall down, because Serenthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. John's saying, I'm out of here, because the building could collapse at any moment, because the enemy is here. That's how seriously John took this, that if you deny the deity of Jesus Christ, there's no question that you are an enemy of the truth. If you think that reaction is a little bit overstated, read the epistles with that in mind. John does not spare words. If you do not confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, John chapter, 1 John chapter 4, then you're not a Christian. And so I wonder if us today, we have become so familiar with this story. I mean, so Ayana answered correctly, but a lot of we kind of sit here and think, well, I mean, what's so amazing about Jesus? Well, that he came from heaven, um, you know, I mean, that's how I did when I began to think about this. But think about in our contemporary world, we have this amongst us. Of course, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, but maybe even a little closer. How about progressive Christianity? Some of you might not be familiar with that term. But I'm going to give you a little bit of some definitions, and I'd like to look at this a little more closely. There's a quote from Dr. Michael Kruger where he gives a very brief, concise summary of what that is, and he says this, one of the hallmarks of progressive Christianity is the way they view Jesus. The orthodox view of Jesus, of course, is that he is the divine Son of God and worthy of our worship, worthy of our adoration, and to be praised as God. But that's not what progressive Christians believe. They believe that Jesus isn't so much the divine Son of God, but rather just the moral example for us to follow. Jesus is more of a big brother that sets a pattern that we walk in his footsteps. That's partly true, of course, we do follow Jesus' example. 
But progressive Christians make that the main thing. Jesus is just a picture of what we can be and what we can do. And his main point is just to set an example for us. And he goes on to say that the lowering of Jesus is one of the first marks of progressive Christianity. And how about, this is, I, I haven't thought about this much before, but have you ever considered how easily we use phrases like, I want to be the hands and feet of Jesus? Or, there's room for everyone at the table. Or we want to care for the least of these. Now, I want to say this carefully. As Anabaptist people, we believe that our faith should be evident and that we should reach out, be involved, and connect. I'm not saying that those things should necessarily be undone or not done or that we shouldn't do those things. But when those things become the priority or when there are other things left undone, then we can begin to move towards a heretical gospel. I'd like to give you some illustrations. <clears throat> One of the things that we also do that and that we need to we need to think about this this closely. Think of think of theology and doctrine as as a as a target. I think of it laying flat with different rings. And there are different values or different levels, if you will, of what is core. And if we're honest, and maybe this, I'm not necessarily trying to say that this is us or you or here, but within our broader, I'm painting with a broad brush. If we're honest, we tend to major on the outer rings, on what I would say, maybe we could say we major on the minors. In other words, we're way at the outside of the outer ring so that we don't for sure lose the core. And we divide, if you recall Pastor James's message, over all kinds of things because we're, 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 we're holding on to this truth, whatever that might be, so it doesn't come closer to the center. Is it possible that while we're doing that, we're actually rotting at the core? And that some of these doctrines like the deity of Christ and what that actually means for us 
Oh, we believe them. Here's the question, though. Has it made a difference in your life? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the remainder of our time, I'd like to consider why John was writing. And John gives us a very clear answer in chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John tells us exactly why he's writing. <clears throat> the other thing that we see is that this is a book of signs. John says that there are many other signs. So in other words, he was selective about what he wrote. And once we kind of know that and we begin to, go, we begin to read the, the Gospel of John, John is very intentional, I believe, very intentional about what signs he includes in his book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. So, what John is saying, this is significant. What John is saying is that Jesus is not just simply a good moral teacher. Jesus is saying, that John is saying, that Jesus came to deal with the problem of sin in your heart. That's the primary thing that Jesus came to deal with in order that you might have eternal life. <clears throat> you see, our biggest problem, the biggest problem in life that we have is not our circumstances. The biggest problem we have in life is we need a connection to the Father. And that connection is only possible through Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example to help you think about that. And in relation with, with how we then help those around us. Think of in World War II, in a Nazi prison camp. And so the Nazis annihilated or imprisoned the Jews... For the sake of the story, these people are not Christians. And how would we help those people? Well, obviously, the imprisoned Jew would need some care. He would need a drink of water. He would need some clothes. He might need some medical help. Which we would all want to do. But what's his biggest need? His biggest need, the most important need, is that he needs Jesus. And if our 
helping him doesn't lead to that, then we're simply being good social workers. Or how about the Nazi? You see, if we begin to see these people through those lenses, then there's not that much difference. They both need Jesus. John gives us a story. John gives us a sign in the book of John where that I believe we can relate to. This is in chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? Jesus, at the end of that story, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So they recognize this, listen, listen closely, look closely, read closely. They recognize Jesus as the prophet. Or maybe even the Messiah. So this is in verse 14 of John chapter 6. And then if we follow the story, Jesus, because the people wanted to crown him as king, he leaves. The disciples cross the Sea of Galilee in the boat. That's the story where Jesus comes walking on the water. The next morning, the people figure out where he's at. They come around the lake. And here's where we pick up the story. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. How often do we do that? We come to Jesus. We come to Jesus because of our circumstances. Because I'm sick. Because whatever. Fill in the blank. You all have your own story of what that is. Jesus says, he goes on to say, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And then Jesus goes on to expound on being the bread of life. And it's after that that many of his disciples left him because the saying was too hard. You see, Many of us come to Jesus because of what we can get. Jesus is it. He is the answer. Jesus longs for us to see that. Read the, read, the, read the entire book. The, the book is full of signs of things that Jesus did. Go back John chapter 5 where Jesus healed the, the blind, uh, the, the cripple at the pool. And then he had the long dialogue with the Jews. And he, they, he, he was in trouble with the Jews because he professed to be the Christ. 
And the signs, if you read through the book, all of these signs are pointing towards Jesus being fully God and fully man. There's the changing of water into wine. The healing of the royal official's son in chapter 4. In chapter 9, the healing of the blind man and the raising of Lazarus and the dead. And all of these stories are given. John, John tells us that he put these stories in here so that we might believe that Jesus is God and that we can have life in him. In closing, I'd like to go back to chapter 1 of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We don't have time to fully unpack that. In the beginning, there was fellowship. In the beginning, what's John referring to? He doesn't start, have you ever thought about it? He doesn't start with the Christmas story. John starts in the beginning. Where else do we read in the beginning? In Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so the word or the logos was with God and the word was God. It's like saying he's saying and God was God. See, it's a mind-boggling statement. And then he reiterates, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him there was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I'd like for us to back out a little bit and zoom out, if you will, of the first chapter of John. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... There's some highlights in there leading up to the first sign that John does, which is the wedding, the turning of the water into wine. So we have John talking of Jesus being the light, and then there's the testimony of John in, in verses... <coughs> 19 to the end of that chapter. Andrew and Peter follow Christ. Jesus calls his first disciples. And then in the beginning of chapter 2, and this, if you read the story, if you read all that story, this all happens in a matter of three days. And then we have the wedding at Cana. John says in chapter 11 of, in verse 11 of chapter 2 that this is the beginning of signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And I want us to think a little bit about why do you think that Jesus chose a wedding for his first miracle? Do you see the beginning and the end of the story? Do you see how big this story is that God has invited us into. John starts out in the beginning, all the way back at the beginning of time. And his first sign that Jesus is God in flesh is at a wedding. And what does John talk about in Revelations? At when we all will come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In between there, 
Jesus calls his first disciples. And did you ever notice the dialogue of what they had there? Andrew and the other disciple begin to follow him. And Jesus turns around and he says, What do you want? Now, if Jesus was here today in the flesh, and he asked you that question, what do you want? What would you tell him? I think many of us would do like the disciples did right there. We would say, um, well, uh, where are you staying? What, what a question. Where are you staying? I don't think they understood. Do you think they understood? No, I don't think they understood that Jesus wanted to live in them. But that's what Jesus is inviting us into. And at the wedding, did you ever think about it? When we go to a wedding, we make sure that we are not outshining the bride or that we are not dressed. You know, you ladies make sure that your dress is not better looking than the bride because the glory is on the bride, right? Jesus did the miracle and John writes, he manifested his glory. See, Jesus is looking for a bride. And his disciples believed on him. We'll pick this up in a few weeks. I'm going to pray, and then I've asked Austin to close the service. So. Father, thank you so much that you have made a way for us to know you, to be known by you. Thank you that you have invited us into a relationship with you. I just pray that as we leave here, that as we interact with those around us, that we might be able to tell them the good news. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.